the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceinthecity.org. Today is Friday, January 30th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Here's a word for you. Oology, the study of eggs. And here's another. Nidology, the study of nests. Today, we're looking at both via the Western Foundation of Vertebrate Zoology. Recently, the foundation teamed up with renowned photographer Rosamund Purcell to produce Egg and Nest, a book featuring photos of the Western Foundation's collection and science to go along with it. Rosamund Purcell spoke at the American Museum of Natural History in December, and I recently interviewed Linnea Hall and Renee Corrado, co-authors of the book and scientists at the Western Foundation. Today, learn about the foundation, the photos, and ornithology, the study of birds. When I was first asked to do this, I thought, there is nothing quite so different from a nest than an egg. Meet Rosamund Purcell. And even though the two go together, you know, you find a bird's egg in a nest all the time, they aren't necessarily aesthetically always appealing to a visual artist. Purcell is a well-known photographer and artist, and her latest project was to photograph the egg and nest collection of the Western Foundation of Vertebrate Zoology. I'm not a scientist, but I am looking at these things (laughs) as they are presented and as they are so wonderful. The egg is just, I mean, any egg is endless. It goes on forever. There's no sort of beginning of an egg or an end. They come in so many different colors, and, you know, eggs range from being very round to being being pyriform so that they're almost uh, like a triangle so that they won't roll off the cliffs of the birds that, that lay them. And then the nests themselves are so eccentric. And I think that putting them together was really, for me, it was like putting together two things that just, I couldn't imagine how it would end up. My name is Dr. Linnea Hall, and I am the executive director of the Western Foundation. The Western Foundation of Vertebrate Zoology is a repository for birds' eggs, birds' nests, and also study skins, but especially for eggs and nests pretty much the largest collection in the world, of, um, especially of nests, but also of eggs. The British Museum of Natural History also has a large egg collection, but uh, I believe at this time we, we actually have more specimens. It's a giant museum with about 800 specimen cabinets in it, all full of row after row after row and drawer after drawer of eggs and nests. Uh, hi, my name is Rene Corrado. I'm the collections manager of the Western Foundation of Brebertology. I am an Oologist. I am the guy who worked with eggs. I started the Western Foundation since 1985-86, and I am from Guatemala. We have more than 400 collections. Museums are not, in North America, they are not having egg or nest collections anymore because it requires so much care and so a lot of space. So they're not good. Eggs are not good to display because they lose the color and so on. We have all of these collections in sealed cabinets. We acquired the orphan collections so that nobody else wanted, but it's great for science. So we are, like we always say here, Anna, so uh, nobody else have all the eggs in one basket, but uh, we do. We have uh, all together in here, so that way, if a scientist come from, let's say, Japan, they don't have to go to all around and um, trying to measure or photograph of 
do any study in the eggs, so they can just come to one place and they have all the eggs in here. Hall and Corrado worked with Purcell to produce egg and nest. They wrote the science, and Purcell took the photos. Well, you know, egg and nest was an assignment, and that means that I was asked by um, a very nice editor at Harvard University Press, Ann Downer Hazel, to please go out to the Western Foundation and follow the lists of eggs and nests that I would be handed and come back with some photographs so that they could do a book on this pretty secret collection. I, I don't mean that it was being kept a secret, but I mean that it was, that it is really an unknown place. The Western Foundation's collection is unique because of its size and also, as Hall explains, because of its nature. There are not that many people anymore who, I would say, collect eggs and nests specifically to put into egg collections. We're probably one of the few institutions in the world that still does that on an active basis. We have a project, for example, in Guatemala right now where we go and we do collect both eggs and nests of species in that country to have a representation of their breeding activity because very few of the birds there have actually been studied in that capacity. But other researchers in general in the world usually focus on one or the other thing. Um, these days they collect you know, some eggs maybe or, and they study various aspects of those or they collect nests and they study various aspects of those. In the olden days though, when people were collecting you know, egg materials, they oftentimes collected the nest too. And so that's why we end up in our collection having a lot of both because very often if we would get the eggs from a particular orphaned collection or a particular private collector's collection, the nests would come also. The Western Foundation is both a museum and a massive research hub. Hall is an avian ecologist and says that if you can come up with a question as a researcher... There is a way to answer that question using egg materials or nest materials. I mean, there's so many different ways to use the materials. Specifically, we get requests, for example, uh, for the eggs for, of course, shape and color. Of, you know, how, does that, how do shapes and colors and even eggshell thicknesses and things vary for species across a geographic area? How do those things vary over time? We get people who request samples, say, from the early 1800s and have us measure various characteristics of those to compare against egg samples that are now, let's say, from the mid-1900s when DDT started being used or nowadays from the 1990s and 2000s. So you can get historical information on these materials. You can, as we said, sample the eggshells and sample membranes and things to extract contaminants and to look at genetic you know, actually to identify the eggs, like what species laid them, if there's some confusion about that. So especially in regards to eggshell thickness, you know, that's something that's told us a lot over these past 30 or 40 years when we see how much DDT is in the environment that's registered in the eggshells, you know, so we can determine how that and other chemicals are impacting bird reproduction. And so all that's really important. But what about nests? Bird families and particular species also within those families build their nests in particular ways. So you can actually identify, in, in many cases, not in all cases, but you can identify what species built a nest just by looking at the nest. And so that can actually even tell you, you know, that, that a bird was present in an area, a species, particular species was present in an area, let's say, 100 years ago, building nests, whereas that species doesn't even occur there anymore. And so it, again, can give you historical information on what species were present in an area, also what vegetation was present in an area historically. Because 
maybe the plant species that the bird used to construct the nest, as Renee was saying, they aren't even there anymore, you know, 100 to 150 years later, because the area has been so denuded or deforested or, you know, degraded something you wouldn't even think about, but people also remove parasites from nests and study bird parasites because a lot of bird species have their own species-specific parasites, and those are represented in the nest, and so we learn a lot about insects and about host-parasite relationships and all of that from studying nests. You can nowadays, too, one of the things we see in Guatemala is a lot of the nests include plastic materials, which weren't there 100 years ago, and so, you know, there's a question about are the birds able to regulate the chicks' temperatures well enough in those nests that have plastic composition as opposed to vegetation composition. What's going on in the environment is actually represented in the nest construction, too. And Purcell has the perfect example. Here is a Bell's Vireo nest that had in, woven into it um, newspaper. And I, could, I read the newspaper, and it's a story about how Adolf Ox who was the founder of the New York Times, turned over the Chattanooga Times to his daughter-in-law. And so therefore, we know the date, which I think is 1905, and we know, therefore, that this newspaper was printed before the nest was made. But the interesting thing is that the nest comes from Texas and the newspaper item comes from Tennessee. You sort of wonder if the bird crossed state lines. Egg and Nest is 232 pages of beautifully photographed eggs and nests from the collection. But with over a million specimens, Corrado and Hall had a big job when it came to picking out which eggs and which nests made it into the book. When we were first considering the idea, what Renee and I did was made a list of all the specimens that we knew were very beautiful or very interesting or, or very different from our familiarity with the collections. And as Renee mentioned, he's been here since the late 80s and has been working with all of the collection materials. Um, there's just so many, you can't see all of them and remember all of them, but there were certain ones that stood out to him over the 20 years while he was here that um, we made sure to note down. And then there were additional ones that we felt that were of species that we knew to be declining or extinct that we wanted to make sure were included right from the very beginning because we wanted to tell a story about them and use those as a teaching tool to emphasize the importance of conservation of these species. And so we actually just made an initial list of about 50 different specimens because the book was initially only going to be about 50 pictures. <laughs> and then uh, Rosamond came on her first trip and we realized, oh gosh, you know what, there's a lot more that we can hit. So we just kind of began going through, again, the materials and various species that we knew would, would be beautifully represented in the book. To tackle the variety of eggs and nests, I asked Hall and Corrado to describe a couple of their favorites from the book. During her lecture, Purcell did the same. Here's a, a bird, it's a beautiful oil bird from South America, and it has uh, extraordinarily gorgeous feathers. It's a very fat bird because it lives in a cave and that's populated by bats, and they all eat a very sort of rich, oily fruit that makes them very well fed. And they make revolting nests out of guano, and here is their guano nest. And this is a nest from Guatemala City that was taken off a roof, and it's made of sticks and wire, and also an, a lot of firecracker remains. You see in the book, and uh, we include a, a nest of uh, rock pigeon that uh, the nest and I collect in Guatemala City is completely made of firecrackers and uh, wires. 
And instead of sticks, and so keep in mind those babies and uh, hatching in that house, in that bed, in there, and so it's just wire, it's not a stick. And birds pick that, that uh, wire because, you know, it's an, um, very close to a stick. There's like two little pieces of vegetation in it, and the rest of it is metal. But it, the birds had a search image for stuff that looked like sticks, but the sticks weren't available because it's in the middle of a city that, you know, basically has no vegetation in it anymore. So they built the nest with what they've got. You know, how good is that for, for these birds long term? Of course, rock pigeons don't have a real problem with their populations. These are, that's the same thing we call regular city pigeons. They don't have a problem with numbers, but if other birds are doing that too, you know, or, or to, to greater and lesser degrees, how is that impacting their populations? These are muir eggs. They're pyriform. They're pointed at one end, as I said in the beginning, so that they won't roll off the cliff. And there are tens of thousands of of birds in any one group on the cliffs. And they must not roll off, but also every bird must know its own egg. And so every egg is different and printed, uh, imprinted differently. And it's a learned thing, so that if the egg is laid and it's a certain pattern and then it gets covered with a little muck and guano and dirt, the parents can still recognize the egg. So one nest in particular that we asked Rosamond to photograph is a nest of a weaver, an African weaver, in this case a black-throated malimbe, which was collected from the Belgian Congo. And it's a very long nest. It's also like about the size of, a, of an Altamira oriole nest, about three feet long. And there's the picture of the nest overall itself and then the detail of the nest. And the cool thing is is that weavers, you know, they're kind of like the, the pinnacle of nest construction behavior in the bird world. They literally loom their nests, right? They weave them with very um, kind of fancy techniques of over and under, like typical weaving techniques. And they tie knots and they have slip knots and they do all these kind of fancy things. And the fact that they're doing that just with their bills And it's just amazing to me because the birds themselves are pretty small, but the nest is huge. And it's just so sturdy and tightly woven that it's actually got a lot of rigidity to it, a lot of structure. These are tinamou eggs, which have a highly glossy surface and are laid by the ancient birds, in mostly in forests. And these eggs, all these different colors, are absolutely the way they are. And these eggs reflect their surroundings and therefore become disguised from predators. And I, I practiced with these eggs. I sort of rolled them around, or, well, as best I was allowed, but, and then had these surroundings kind of melt the edges away. And you could see that in the, under the right circumstances, under the right bush, that you would not necessarily know that an egg was there because it was so, so interrupted by the outside world. In terms of eggs, I actually have several favorites, and it's pretty much all of the pictures that were taken of the Prinia eggs. Mm. And Prinias are little grass warblers, again, in India. And the eggs are very small. They're, they're probably only about a centimeter long, a little more than a centimeter, but they're beautifully marked. They've basically got their kind of a white background on the egg, and then they've got these beautiful little paint splotches on them in some cases, like on pages 154 and 155, they're like literally little tiny dots of color, peach and mauve and purple. They're just gorgeous. 
and they really look like like little paintings. These ones actually in close-up look the most like Easter eggs probably of any of the ones in the book. There's so much variability in this genus, the Prinia genus. There are m many different species within the genus, and the eggs of each of these species are very different, and even the eggs of individuals within species are very different. So it's just really remarkable, again, like what evolution and can, can produce over time. Hall and Corrado say that Egg and Nest has been exceptionally well-received since it came out this fall. We're really pleased with the reception of the book. Since it came out, we've heard from lots of people who've seen it. Um, we've had lots of really positive reviews of the book, like in the New York Times and on various people's blog sites. And it's just been wonderful to see the response. And for me personally, that's what I was really hoping for, was that people would would be kind of turned on by all this and go like, my gosh, we had no idea how beautiful these materials were and also how important they are. You know, And that's what I'm really hoping, too, is that when people are looking at the pictures, they're reading the captions, and they're learning something about the biology of the birds or about the natural history of the specimens, or about even the conservation aspects. And so, but I'm just so excited that that so many people are are responding the way we hoped. To and um, and we took the book to Guatemala, and this last trip we did, and uh, so we showed it to uh, the government uh, people in there we work with, and the other people. So they were asking to um, translate the book to Spanish, and they said well, we want to translate it. So. Uh, they love it, and uh, so we're very proud of this uh, product. And uh, so, um, after two or uh, two years, two and a half years of working in it, I think, and uh, it came very beautiful with uh, all of those pictures that Rosamond took. Thanks for listening. If you love Science in the City podcasts and appreciate new science content every week, we would love your support. There are two ways you can help us out. The first is to become a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us online at scienceandthecity.org for more information. The second thing you can do is sponsor a Science in the City podcast. Get your name and advertising in an episode of our Science in the City podcast distributed to thousands of listeners every week. For more information, email Adrian Burke at A-B-U-R-K-E at N-Y-A-S.org. Want a quick and easy way to download our podcasts? Subscribe to them on iTunes. Just search Science in the City in your iTunes search bar. And as always, if you have any questions or comments about a podcast you hear on Science in the City, we would love your feedback. You can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. And don't forget to visit us online, www.scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.